Good evening, historians. Yeah, we got a little bit of a treat this evening with uh, Damien Lewis. So he is the guy that has uh, told us all we need to know about the SAS in story form. This is the exciting stuff now. And this man has been involved in documentaries with National Geographic. He's written, I think, 15 books. He really is. uh, Yeah, he's a joy to read. And I, I do suspect he's going to be a joy to to chat with this evening so yeah we're going to be in for for a good one and we're going to be talking about Irish guys actually as well one from the south and one from from the north that managed to cross the sectarian divide so we'll hear a bit more from that when we meet Damien so welcome good evening Damien Lewis hi how are you doing yeah very good very Very good good. thanks for coming on the show thanks to uh coming on to the historians. So you're, you're a busy man, I'd say, anyway, with, with the, the new book coming out and all that. It's uh, all going well for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Busy time, yeah. But it's uh, yeah. always good to talk, to talk to you guys. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 100%. We, we always kind of like to share the love of history on this channel, Damien. We get a lot of like-minded people on board and ranging from all the way back to, to prehistory yeah, yeah. and right up to we were talking about ransomware. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which brings us right up to today so we're right even though we just started off and we're just still kind of building up we've hit a lot of big balls out of the park so yeah. far but this yeah. evening we're looking forward to talking to you because there's huge don't want to be flying the flag too much but huge irish connections i think what we're going to be talking about in this yeah season. absolutely yeah, right? yeah yeah absolutely completely true of course mm. And a really, a really interesting topic. And yeah, so welcome, Damien Lewis. Thank you so much for, for coming on to the Hipstorians. And going to speak to us a little bit about some of the, I mean, I'd like to touch on some of the things that you have done up until today, because you've got a, an extensive repertoire of historical knowledge. And then we'll get into talking about Blair, Paddy Main and Mando 11 and how all that kicked off. And, and, yeah, sure. Know, for Churchill's boys and, and all that kind of thing, but obviously led to, to, to the SAS. Mm-hmm. And this is your niche. This is where you really excel. You have such an amazing narratives. You have a great way of storytelling and it really brings that history to life. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, what was, what, where you were before this, this latest release. Yes, I mean, obviously I um, spent two decades really kind of reporting uh, across the world from largely war zones. I mean, all the kind of, nasty conflict there as you can think of and then you know I was actually yeah I, I was uh, kind of I had to stop because I had had serious operation on, on on my on my spine about about 15 20 years ago so I was forced to stop doing that kind of work and that led me into my first book by chance and uh, that was an international bestseller and that kind of led me into um, what I do today which is to kind of kind of tell these mostly World War II history stories but some of them are are more contemporary there are some which are almost bang up to the present day so that's kind of a potted history of of uh, what what my my career has been all about excellent excellent and to tell us uh, you know to, to get into the story of of Blair Paddy Main did you find it easy to get access with the family or was it was it easy to kind of pull some of the stories that you managed to get yeah, so about 10 years ago they actually approached me so Main's family kind of reached out to me via a a mutual acquaintance and they asked me if I'd be interested in going to have a look through this 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 war chest and all the all the memorabilia that they had of course in our in 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 Northern Ireland and you know I didn't know anything about the the fact that this existed and it'd been kept very secret and all the rest of it so it was kind of a um 
a tantalizing proposition and, and trying to cut a long story short i i flew over there and and lo and behold you know at, at the family home there was this incredible rich trove of materials brought back from five years behind enemy lines all wow. through the war and kept secret in, in in the family home for all these decades and that's kind of a very rare proposition as a historian you you guys will appreciate that very rarely do you come across that kind of opportunity and it, it it's a rare thing that you get soldiers in a position where they can do that where you can hoover up this kind of material over all those years and 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 bring it back to your 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 hometown at the end of the conflict hell of a proposition yeah absolutely oh i'd say it was like gold dust too i'm a fellow writer myself damien i've written a couple of books here in ireland and when somebody when you when you describe it like that it's like opening up a treasure trove it's just presented to you it's just... yeah no i mean look look you know i walked into that room and there was this mm. massive wooden trunk among many other things with wow. colonel blair main dso and his address stenciled on the top you know one no. of those huge wooden trunks with kind of like wooden struts around it and it was you know you just look at it and think my gosh what's in there and then that was opened and uh, it's just stuff full of not just documents reports and letters from all through the war, but actual photographs and, and even undeveloped film and negatives. Because one of the things Maine was very keen on, I mean, he was an absolutely brilliant photographer throughout the war. And he basically, he in the booty that he seized on these various operations, and he would refer to it in that way at the time, he actually seized um, these, these, these very good cameras off some of those, uh, you know, during some of those raids, and he used those to literally take photographs all through the war years. And so, so much of that material was like preserved in, in, in that war chest and then all the other memorabilia that he brought back. So yeah, it was, uh, you can appreciate it. It was like one of those, yeah, extraordinary propositions. Yeah, very exciting. You know, you're like walking into an Aladdin's cave. Amazing stuff. And it's led to the brilliant book, SAS Band of Brothers, which is just what we're going to do here, Damien, is I need to bring back uh, our listeners a little bit, right? Because the iconic imagery of the SAS is probably more modern ears would be the black clad action men bursting yeah. into the Iranian embassy there in the 1980s, which still makes for dramatic footage, right? But what yeah. we're talking about now is really the, the birth of the, of the SAS. Were they even called the SAS at this time? And, 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 and a follow-up question to that is, just tell us a bit of background about this this. It's really strange character, for want of a better word, and the origins of what is now the SAS. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously we're talking about, you know, the, 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 the time when this regiment was, was you know, just a, an idea in one man's mind. I mean, David Sterling had this crazy idea in North Africa when, when the Allies were at their darkest hour, Britain and, and, and the British Isles were at their darkest hour, defeat on all fronts. Most people feared the war was lost. And... The, the, the ground war certainly was at its fiercest in North Africa and we were we, we were not doing well. And, and David Sterling, as I say, had this high-born Englishman, maverick thinker, visionary, had flights of fancy, more ideas in a week, one person said, than, than most officers would have in a whole campaign. And Sterling had this idea that because the desert was open, wide open, massive space, you know, the size, the size of Western Europe. So the desert of North Africa offered an ability, if you could navigate it, to get behind the enemy lines and carry out these, these daring raids. That was the idea behind the, 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 the concept behind the SAS. And the, mm. the, the initial target was the air bases, the German and Italian air bases, because air power was absolutely crucial. 
And so, first of all, Sterling had to get that idea through the powers that be and get somebody to bless it and give him carte blanche and, 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 and weaponry and vehicles and, and, and recruits. But secondly, he had to actually find those individuals. And this is where Maine, among other individuals, step into the picture because they, they Maine and several other, the key, key originals in, in the SAS uh, had actually served in, in, in a unit previously and has just about all the original recruits they'd all served in the commandos and specifically in the Middle East commando, which was number eight, seven, eight and eleven. A number eleven commander was known as a Scottish commando. And it was recognised by all three really as being the most highly trained and the most diehard. And, 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 and Blair Paddy Main, Ian McGonagall, a Southern Irishman, uh, who was Maine's best friend, by the way, uh, uh, all through the war until his his sad demise, and, and and a chap called Will Fraser, who was a Scotsman. These were some of the standout characters in that Number Eleven Commando, highly highly trained, as I say, and they were they were deployed on their first operation in the summer of forty one, spring summer of forty one, to to carry out an amphibious assault in in, in Syria and the Lebanon against air bases that were being used by German forces. And that had been their baptism of fire. So these were battle-hardened guys, highly, mm. highly trained. And when and when the powers that be decided to do away with Number 11 Commando, because these irregular special service volunteers, as they were known, were never popular with high command. And when, when they saw the writing on the wall, by chance, David Sterling stepped forward with his idea for the SAS, and many of them stepped forward to volunteer because what they hungered to do was to fight and take the battles of the enemy. And the SAS seemed to give them the chance to do so. Incredible. And, and sorry, where, where, where does the LRDG, the Long Range Desert Group, come into this story? Then? Yeah, yeah. So the, the LRDG, the Long Range Desert Group, was another kind of crazy uh, British military brainchild. But it, it was actually it predates the SAS. And what the LRDG... Ah were formed to do was they were formed basically to drive their two-wheel drive Chevrolet trucks across the desert behind the lines gathering intelligence. They were chiefly an intelligence gathering outfit and they would only engage in in combat with the enemy if, if they kind of had to get out of a tough situation. And mm. so the LRDG were kind of, they, they predated the SAS. And when the first ever operation undertaken by the SAS, Operation Squatter, got underway and they inserted by parachute, utter disaster. The worst storming living memory blew up in the desert and and, and of 60 odd, odd SAS who deployed on that first operation, only 22 came back. Uh, the rest were all injured, captured or killed. And because it was such a disaster, this idea of parachuting in, the LRDG turned round to the SAS and said, look, why don't we take you in? We can drive you in overland, drop you close to your targets. We can pick you up again afterwards. We can basically be your, your taxi service. And that was the deal that was cut. And indeed, the SAS ended up nicknaming the LRDG, the Desert Taxi Company. And the LRDG <laughs> nicknamed the SAS the Parachites because they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so they had this great kind of, um, you know, piss taking relationship between the two of them. But actually... That was it. That was it was a brilliant marriage made in heaven, which enabled so many of the earliest raids to actually go ahead and, and, and succeed. Yeah, I mean, I that they're really committed. I mean, the whole reason they, they, they joined up largely was the absolute commitment, was it, to, to fight to fight the Nazis. I mean, they, they were very much about we want to do our, our bit. And Blair Paddy May didn't fit into the regular army. Right. So, you know, he, he got he got 
he just he had the wrong attitude and and he got picked up. Yeah, to... yeah. I mean, you know, he had the he had the wrong attitude for the regular army. You know, mm. for the start, in the sense that when he was um, in officer training before joining the commandos, he was assessed as being uh, a poor recruit, no discipline, and all the didn't like regimental square brashing and all the rest of it. So he was kind of presented as a, as an absolute no hoper as 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 an officer. But then, then the commander of number 11 commando, the founder of number 11 commando, and bear in mind, the commandos were formed at the pest of Churchill in, in June 1940 to try and take the fight back to the enemy after, after defeat in France. And the commander of number 11 commando, Colonel Pedder, saw in the individuals like Maine exactly what he was looking for, because he was looking for individuals who were mavericks, who could think outside the box, free thinkers, self-starters, and the kind of things that had made made Maine not seen as an ideal recruit for bog standard officer training made him absolutely perfect first for number 11 commander and then for the SAS because the thing about the SAS was speed aggression surprise those were SAS many people say it stands for that and the, the key thing of those three was the surprise doing the least thing expected by the enemy and to do that you had to have a completely non-conventional, unconventional way of looking at things. You had to be able to dream up things which the enemy would never imagine you doing. I'll just give you one example. So the first, the, the second raids they ever undertook in, um, in in November and December 1941, so after the disaster of Operation Squatter, taken in by the Long Range Desert Group, raided a number of airfields. Maine's raid was very successful, as was Bill Fraser's, the Scotsman I mentioned earlier, uh, both number 11 commando veterans. So then they got back to their base and it, Christmas was just around the corner in the new year. And they decided to go straight back in again and not go just go back in again and do another set of raids over Christmas and New Year. But go back to the very same air bases they'd raided before because they reasoned the enemy would never imagine one, the raiders to strike over the festive period and two, to come back to exactly the same targets. And it's that kind of thinking, that kind of outside of the box piratical way of viewing things which was absolutely called for with this unit at the time you know what he looks the part Damien doesn't he when you see pictures of him he's a rugby six foot two rugby player but I, I love the image of him here um, you look at him in the desert he's got he's got his cap on he looks a bit disheveled he's got some sort of jumper he's hardly in uniform you know he, he's like the second world more version of Lawrence of Arabia to me yeah abso absolutely and you know there's many people argue that yes the yes yes was the birth of modern-day special forces soldiering, but many people say that actually Lawrence of Arabia had, in a way, pioneered it uh, mm. several decades before. But you're absolutely right. Look, Maine, even before the war, he was a standout individual. This was the guy who was the Queen's University heavyweight boxing champion. But more than that, he was, he was capped for Ireland for the Irish rugby team numerous times, numerous times. And then, of course, he played in 1938 for the Irish Lions. Uh, sorry, the British and Irish Lions in a tour of South Africa. And he was even in the South African press. And you know how hard the South Africans are on other rugby teams. He was acclaimed as being outstanding. This was a man who, when the rest of the team all got injured because of the hard ground, Maine just kept going. So he'd already kind of uh, attained this this more or less mythical status amongst in that fraternity. So he turns up in, in the SS training camp right at the very start. And a lot of the soldiers there have heard the rumour that this is a, a Irish and British and Irish Lions rugby international. They can't quite believe it. And you like this story. It's a, it's a great thing. So at, at their 
Cabrit training base, they had a makeshift rugby pitch. So the first thing they'd do is they'd get up before before it got uh, before before sunrise and it got too hot, and they'd play a game of rugby by lanterns, and it was absolutely absolutely anything was allowed, no holds barred, right? And the idea was that by pushing each other to see how much you could take, you'd build that esprit de corps. And of course, Maine turns up and no one can quite believe he is this international rugby store and he steams down the field and shows them just what a man of that stature is is made of. And so David Sterling, I mean, kind of inspired in a way, he realised that that, that with a guy like Maine, you had to play to his strength. So he immediately appointed him not only the PT, physical training officer, which makes sense, but the discipline officer of the whole unit. And what Maine used to do, and again, you'll love this being Irishman. Well, I lived in Ireland for 10 years. So I've got a good sense of your, your humour and the way you view the world over there. And Maine used to say, right, OK, so there was an infraction. You stayed out past the, the, the time you're supposed to be back in camp, whatever it might be, on a night out. And he'd get you into his tent and he'd say, right, what's your explanation? And if you just said, yeah, OK, I, I messed up, it's all right, in the boxing ring. And you'd go as many rounds as you could with me in the boxing <laughs> ring. And then that was it. There was no documentation. Was no, there was no stain on your career. It was done and dusted. But even better than that, he, basically, he said, if you can come up with a story that will make me laugh as an excuse, I'll let you off. So I'll give you an example. One of the guys said, oh, well, well, what happened was I was coming back from the, the, a night out with the lads. I stopped to light a cigarette because it was so windy. I turned in the opposite direction to shield the match from the flame. I forgot I turned around, so I walked the wrong way for a few hours. <laughs> the, desert, the desert all looks the same, and that's why I'm late. And they knew it was it was bullshit, of course, but because yeah. he found it, because it made him laugh, he let the guy off. That's the kind of quirky, <laughs> maverick, yeah. Irish-spirited... And, and that, that, that's the other thing that, that I'm really keen to do in the book is to stress the fact that this was a man who was Irish through and through, through, mm. to, through to his soul and his boots. Mm. He was an Irishman. He was proud to be an Irishman. When people used to ask him, what's an Irishman or what, why are so many Irish? Because there were there were rakes of Irish recruits in the SAS. OK, and, and when people used to ask him, what's an Irishman doing fighting in, in the British cause? He used to say, you know, what I'm fighting for. I'm fighting for the right of all small countries to determine their own destiny and be free. Now, that's wow. pretty That's pretty deep and that's pretty amazing. That's what he used to say. And then later in the war, so as, as the, the SAS progresses and gets more kind of established and is less in danger of disbandment from those who, from their detractors, and there were many, all those kind of First World War throwback British officers who thought this is really not ungentlemanly warfare, not the way we should be doing things, certainly not the way British officers should behave, and you know, the, the piratical, not following orders, all the rest of it. But when they kind of got over a lot of that, Maine actually formed his own Irish patrol, and, and the Irish patrol was actually all nationalities who weren't English. So it's the Scots, it was the Belgians, it was the Spanish Civil War veterans. Anybody who wasn't English went in his Irish patrol and they even painted lucky shamrocks on the Jeeps, you know? <laughs> so, so this was a guy who was proud of his Irishness. Yeah, and, 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 and whether you were from north or south of the border was irrelevant to him. If you would stand and fight, you were you were in his unit. Okay, well, this is important to us because here, disgracefully, I don't want to get too much into the politics of it, Damien, because, you know, we're lighthearted show and whatnot. But disgracefully, Irishmen who, quote unquote, deserted the Irish army during what we called the emergency, 
which is a very strange way of describing a world yeah. war. They they came after serving in, in across all theaters. You know, there's the Irishmen. They were in D Day. They were in Burma. Yeah, they were absolutely. All you know, winning medals and whatnot. You know what happened when they came back to Ireland? You know, there's even a couple of Dublin men were from Dublin. They were ostracized, not by society, but by the government of the day, in particular, I, I say it's de Valera, right? And get this, right? They were not allowed a, a state pension. This is actually a book that needs to be written. And you know, I'm going to be the man to do it because it's an absolute disgrace what happened, I think, in Ireland after after, after the war, that these men were... were and I, like I said, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here a little bit. No, no, bit. it's perfectly fine. It really, it really it really pisses me off, yeah. it upsets me, where you have these people like Maine, what he just eloquently summed up there. And why, he must have been in his 20s, 30s when he came up with this concept of what he was fighting for was all these small countries. There goes the argument for for and against fighting for 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 want of a better word, the enemy, when Britain yeah, no, was you, standing alone in, in the desert against Hitler. Absolutely. Look, look, the, the great, the, the fantastic thing about writing books about World War II is, is you're not only, it's not only a band, a, a band of brothers or, or brothers in arms fighting in freedom's cause against, against the credo of Nazism, which had it conquered the world, which was the, 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 that was the aim of Hitler and his cronies, conquer the world under a Third Reich. It would have taken away everybody's democratic freedoms, everybody's freedoms full stop. But not only that, not only do you have this band of, of warriors coalescing to do what it took, whatever it took to win that battle in freedom's course, but also they come from all walks of life. Most of them are not professional soldiers. These are, and bear in mind, everybody who was a commando, everybody who was in special service was a volunteer. You could only get in by volunteering. And they came from every walk of life, every nationality. In the SAS, they even had renegade Germans, okay? They had a squad of basically German and Austrian and Czechoslovakian Jews, okay, who'd managed to flee Germany, get out of the Holocaust. Many had seen their loved ones die in, in horrendous circumstances. Some of them had even escaped from the concentration camps themselves. And they volunteered for special service in North Africa, and they too served under Sterling in Maine. And the, why they were so useful, apart from, many, apart from the fact they were utterly fearless, suicidal, you could almost argue, because you can imagine you'd seen all your family put in the, the ovens or the gas chambers, you'd fight to the death to mm. avenge your family. Well, you know, not only that, but they spoke fluent German. Mm. So again, remember what I said about think the unthinkable. When they were going deep behind the lines and they had to, and they had to attack these, these bases deep in any enemy territory, often as the war in North Africa increased and, and, and the Germans and the Italians learned about what the SAS were doing, so had much better defences. So often they'd turn up there and the first thing that would happen is one of the Germans would start yelling out orders to all, all the German garrison and the Italians and, of course, be obeyed. And that was one of the way they, ways they bluffed their way onto these air bases to carry out their operations. That's the genius of it. And it was this coalition of all nations fighting in freedom's cause including the Irish. And it's one thing that I'm really keen to stress in the book is that the there's that phrase, the fighting Irish. And I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely, it's absolutely true. Maine valued those individuals very highly because they had that spirit and the fire to, to burn to fight. I'll just give you one example. There was a chap called, called O'Dowd was his surname. And he was, he was from, he was from Galway. Okay. Southern Irishman from a Catholic family. When he realised yeah, the, the 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 war was coming and he witnessed what was happening with the rise of Hitler. He hungered to fight, but he knew if he said to his family, look, I'm going to go and join the British Army, he would not be allowed to go. 18 years old, he ran away from home, went to London, 
uh, signed up with, with with the guards, but volunteered for special service and ended up in the SS. And from as that happened, he got back in contact with his parents and said, look, this is where I am. This is what I'm doing. And I'm fighting this fight because we need we need to stand up to, to this evil. And his parents gave him their, gave him their blessing. And that guy, O'Dowd, was killed in the war in 43, doing exactly what it set out to do. But he was one of Maine's right hand men in this Irish patrol. And Maine valued those individuals extremely highly. And whenever anybody said that, you know, raised that question, which was raised, of course, what, what are you doing here fighting in the British militia? It was always that answer. We're fighting for the right of the small nations to be free. Well, I think you've done them justice in the book, Derek. Yeah, really no, no, have for, sure, for sure. And I, I, just, I suppose on, on the, the Irish thing, and I wasn't going to bring it up, but uh, mm. just my, my great uncle would have served in the British Army up until 1936, had left, come back home, World War II started, he joined up in 39, and he went and fought with the Parachute Regiment and finished out his service in Palestine, met a German Jewess, whose family had all been killed in Auschwitz, and married her, and then took a ticket to Chicago and never, I, he, I saw him once in, when I was living in America at the time, but he never set foot in Ireland again after that. Yeah. yeah. So that's then uh, parts back to your uh, story. That, that's an incredible story. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 you know, that, 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 that phrase you just used met a, a, a Jewish lady in Palestine. That's where they recruited the, 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 the German Jews and others to join the SAS, to join that unit. It was in Palestine. It was all those individuals who managed to get out. That's where they got them from. Yeah. And I, I presume, Derek, what you mean there is there was an element of, of shame or perhaps... You yeah, know, he, he turned his back on Ireland. He just turned his back on Ireland. That's why books like yours, thing are so crucially important to set the record straight as, as we see it. We're getting, we don't get too political on this podcast, but just some things really get our collective goats. And there's just an injustice there with all these great, brave men putting their lives on the line, fighting for freedom. And then because of the troubled history between Ireland and, and Britain, they're just lumped in with grandiose terms of just traitors or... Yeah, yeah. It, it, you, you guys, you're absolutely right. Look, courage is courage and courage and freedom's falls in the greatest battle for civilization that we've mm. ever experienced. More people died in the Second World War than any other conflict. Courage is courage is courage. And it was the good fight and people fought it for the right reasons. And they should be acclaimed and praised for doing so. Come what may, no matter where they're from, no matter what their nationality, German, Spanish, Italian, British, Scottish... Welsh or Irish, irrelevant. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. So, who was this man named? We spoke about him there with his with his military activities. We mentioned there about it. He was a what? A, a, I don't follow sports too closely, so collect my terminology. But a rugby star, for want yes. of want yeah. a, a better word. So, was he more famous, or is he now more famous for his military activities, or as? A former rugby star who who is this guy effectively well i mean before the war obviously he was he was renowned as, as, as this standout iconic international rugby player i mean really really you, you research his rugby career and the praise is extraordinary but i'm sorry damien was he was he famous in rugby yes in the rugby absolutely. before before the yeah, second yeah. Like yeah, would he been in the yeah. newspapers? The yeah, same and, and 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 going back to your original question, what 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 was what was the nature of this man? Well, I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. He was embarrassed by that fame. He was embarrassed by the praise that defined him as an individual. He was not a man who sought accolades or recognition or 
or gongs or medals. He didn't do anything he did in Second World War for, for, for the praise of anybody whatsoever. He did it for exactly the right reasons. This is a guy who ended up at the end of the war winning, among many other medals, four distinguished service orders. He is arguably the most highly decorated member of the British Army from the Second World War. An extraordinary career by anyone's imagination. And once in 1943, January, February 1943, David Sterling, the founder of the SAS, was captured. Then he had to step forward to take over co to command of the SAS and try to save it from disbandment by all these people on high who just didn't like what they did, what they looked like and what they stood for. And he did that again with reluctance. He did not want to be that individual. He didn't want to be the figurehead. What he loved doing, what he thrilled to, what made him tick, what gave his life meaning was being out there in the desert, on the front line, with his brothers in arms, with his band of brothers, waging war, taking the fight to the enemy, that camaraderie, that 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 togetherness. And, you know, you read any of the accounts of those who served alongside him. And the one one of the things that really stands out, you know, and really strikes home is that they the praise they have for him as a commander is unqualified so I'll, I'll give you an example people off you know he, he's been accused of being by people who don't know better in my view a sociopath a, a psychopath or somebody who had no fear and, and 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 had no empathy quite the reverse is true this is a man who the empathy of this guy as an individual is is extraordinary so why did his men hold him in such high esteem it wasn't because he was a highly decorated warrior it wasn't because he'd blown up and and destroyed by his own hands more than a hundred enemy warplanes by the end of, of their time in north africa it wasn't any of that it was because of the of the care he had for those individuals under his command and because of that they would walk into the fires of hell with him without turning a hair another reason was because that they believed he had the ability to bring them out alive. And part of the reason they believed that was because Maine and, and, and the rugby field, the field of battle, he had this almost unique ability to assess danger, risk in the blink of an eye, in an instant, in a flash, assess the risk, make a value judgment and, and, and decide what the right course of action should be. Do we attack? Do we retreat? And every single time he called it, he called it right. So his men knew they had that confidence in him to lead them into the teeth of battle and do the right thing at the right time. So all the accounts you read of those people who served alongside him come up with that same point again and again and again. And then just one, one final, well, there are many kinds of insight I can give, him to, give you in terms of his nature, but some of the things that stand out for me, you know, like he loses soldiers in, in the midst of battle. And then once that battle is over, he's back at camp. He radios headquarters and asks for the address of the father of the comrade he's lost so he can write to the family and tell them exactly what happened or how highly valued their son or their husband was. And so many times I've come across letters in that in that huge war chest that Maine's written to the families or the families have written back to him showing how much he cared for those under his command. That kind of level of leadership, that's not hollow leadership. That's not leadership by words and by evocation and by, that's leadership from the heart and by example and never expecting your men to do a single thing you wouldn't do yourself and leading into danger from the front. Those are the things he epitomised.
Brilliant. Brilliant. Brilliant summing up with the man there, Damien. Yeah, what, what's, what's, what, what I do like, uh, obviously, about what, what you're doing as well, I mean, it definitely comes across that you're, you're, you feel very strongly about the characters that you're writing about. It's a bloody great yarn and great tales and all that, but there's a little bit more you can obviously see behind the motivation for your writing. Uh, one thing I think it's probably for listeners is it's kind of funny. You can maybe look at it as maybe as a slightly darker side, but uh, I think there's a, there's a tale recounted on the Isle of Aaron and the commando training camp. Perhaps it's possibly a little bit lucky that a he made it over to fight the SES and a couple of, of people under, under, his, uh, under his charge. He, he was fond of an L point or the the artist. Yeah, style. yeah. So 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 Maine was uh, at his most dangerous. Some people argued when he'd been drinking. It was New Year's Eve. They were training on the Isle of Arran with Number Eleven Commando, and uh, he was discovered sometime past midnight. The rest the rest of his housemates had been out, and they came back to find him surrounded by several dozen empty bottles of cherry brandy and most of the victuals, the provisions from the headquarters mess and bar. And what happened is he'd He'd had a few drinks broken into the officer's mess, uh, stolen all the alcohol that he gets his hands on and, and most of the food and brought it all back to their digs and had a party on his own. And and and, and in his cups, he not only um, had had an uh, altercation, fisticuffs as one of his one of his housemates, which, of course, Maine being the boxer he was, his housemate had to get out of there pretty quickly. But then Maine was also firing his pistol at him as he ran away. Uh, luckily, he wasn't shooting straight because he was a bit drunk. But the next day, the point was the next day, the guys came back when he'd sobered up and said, listen, you've got to get go and hide all that stuff, all that stuff you've stolen because there's going to be hell to pay. And actually, he didn't remember. He didn't remember the altercation at all. And when he saw that his friend, had a, his housemate, his friend, his colleague had a black, black eye, he was he was he was distraught and wanted to go and take vengeance against whoever had done it, which was of course himself. So yeah, he had this in his cups. He was pretty much he was he was a hard man to handle. But the interesting thing was about that story is that Colonel Pedder, the commander of Number Eleven Commando, he realised he found out who had stolen all the booze in the mess and all the food, and he he didn't confront Maine at the bar, but he had words with him. And he said, "I found out who." stole everything from the mess on Christmas <laughs> on New Year's Eve. And, and Maine, with that glint in his eye, said, oh, have you really? <laughs> that's, that's, that's very interesting. <laughs> Who might that be? And basically, Pedder let him know quietly that he knew it was him. And he basically said, look, words to the effect of, I can't have the police getting involved or anything because we need to be squeaky clean because there are so many people who want to get want to see the back of us because they don't like who we are and what we stand for and what we're training to do so you need to keep a, a keep a clean sheet so individuals like Pedder understood this was a man who you you know in that kind of unit who was absolutely perfect for what they intended and and that their, their final training mission on Aaron fascinating really because this shows you what they were sent out to do so their final training mission was to go and raid an RAF airbase okay and so they dressed one of the commandos up as a woman she went he she went and stood at the gates and kind of distracted the guards the rest got onto the base and, and they went straight to the officer's mess and they hurled a load of grenades with the pit with with which weren't fused through the windows to simulate killing all the all the officers on on that RAF airbase and this is exactly what uh, Churchill had called for. He said, spread a reign of terror down the enemy coast. Let no German sleep soundly 
in their bed at night, leave a trail of hung corpses and then away. I mean, this is what he had called for, and this is what they set out to do. And to and to carry out those kind of operations, you needed men like Maine at the forefront to give the rest, to give the rest of those men in his command the kind of vision and the strength and the courage and, and, and the foresight to do so. He sounds like a man that we all would have liked to have met, uh, probably worked for, would have liked to gone out for a jar with him, although you'd probably end up in trouble. Uh, he, just, he sounds like a great all-round guy and not I hate to cut to the chase but what the hell happened to him dead at 40 yeah so really interesting question um look so i i, I because I, I i i was personally i've always been convinced that ever since you know starting to look into this in great detail 10 years ago i've been convinced that maine and many others who suffered similarly after the war bill fraser was another one died at early age, had a really tough time after the war. I, I've been convinced for a long time that many of these guys had post-traumatic stress disorder. So I had the manuscript read by a foremost expert in post-traumatic stress disorder in the UK. And she read it and said, you know, well, not only did I pick it up and couldn't put it down, and it uh, and it's the most gripping read, but also I ended up loving these, loving these guys that I read about. I'm with them all the way. But she said, one of those episodes would be enough for PTSD to get to do back to back missions week after week after week for five years in a row and wow. losing your closest friends, people that you've lived with and bled with and suffered with and escaped with, losing them and the, the survivor's guilt. She said it's an it's an absolute it's, it's almost impossible not to end up with serious trauma. And she said really interestingly, she said, look, people who get PTSD are people with imagination and empathy. You need imagination and empathy because you need to put your mind into the mindset of your friend who was injured or captured or killed. And you need to be able to imagine what it was like for them. And that's what, that's what gives you the trauma. It's seeing things from the perspective of the victim. She said, so these individuals, people like Maine and Fraser and the others who suffered really badly after the war, they had those characters to them. So one of the things I was, you know, I write about a lot in the book, Maine was not just a great poet who had aspirations to be a writer, but he was incredibly cultured. He read poetry in the field. He was always with his head stuck, either in a in a really good novel, a really good, a good piece of literature, or in a book of poetry. And so she said, look, that's the kind of individual, that's the photo fit for the kind of person who ends up with PTSD. Now, of course, during the Second World War and after the Second World War, we didn't even recognise it. There was not even a word for it. There, there was certainly no treatment. It was, it was an embarrassment and a shame to even suggest that you might be troubled by five years of hell. OK, and Maine was troubled very troubled after the war, as were so many. And he 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 died an early death, he car crashed late at night. He'd been drinking in in in, in his forties. So a, a real loss of a of a towering individual and a real war hero. And so so sad and so tragic in my view that there was nothing there for these kind of people. Nothing there. No help, no recognition, no no support network, nothing whatsoever. And some people and why I am so passionate about this, there have been people accused Maine of being a berserker, a psychopath, hard drinking, hard fighting Irishman. You know, the tropes that are rolled out. Well, I challenge anyone, anyone amongst us to have been through five years of what he went through. Five years 
of losing, and I've read some of the letters he's written to the wives and the mothers of the closest friends he lost, and they are heartrending mm. to go through five years of that and not come out the other end troubled, wanting a drink, wanting to drown your memories. I challenge anyone not to have ended up like that. And to disrespect people like that who've been through such hellish experiences so we can all live the freedoms we live today. Let's repeat that. So we can all live and enjoy the freedoms we live today, to my mind, is is unconscionable. It's These people should be understood for who they were and what they went through and how they ended up in terms of the, the troubles they suffered. So many of the sons and daughters of those veterans that, that, that feature in the book that I've spoken to say he never spoke about it. Mm. I was speaking to one this week and she said, Dad used to always have terrible nightmares on a full moon. Full moon because they they would carry out parachute operations in the full moon because that's when you could see to jump properly. But he would always have these terrible nightmares on the foot during the full moon. And she said, because I was an afterthought, I, he had four daughters. I was the last born and I, I was really specially close to my dad. And I'd hear him screaming in the bed. I'd go into the bedroom and wake him up and mop his brow with a with a damp cloth. And he'd say to me, this is the, these are the scars where the Germans tortured me. And he had burn marks all across his chest. This is the scar where I was shot. And, but apart from those moments, when she caught him in his nightmares, he never once spoke about the war. And that's what these guys had to do, bottle it all up inside. So, yeah, it, you know, it, it is something I feel very strongly about because it's something I can relate to. I was, I was a war reporter for 20 years. I've seen really bad stuff. And I can, I can understand how it affects you. And I can understand what it does to you year after year after year after year after year. Let no one disrespect someone who's troubled by that. No one at all. God loves them. God loves them. And, and fair play to you for your obvious passion, Damien, in almost feels like you're fighting their corner a little bit. Just talking about Paddy's background there, you just wonder, like I said, almost dismissively, you know, only made it to, to his 40s. How did he even make it that long, considering... Thank you. Yes, yeah. that, that, that's the question. That's the question. You imagine it. So he's he's just in his late 20s when he gets back from the war. He's had he's had five years of. Back to back behind the lines missions of, of killing lots and lots of the enemy, sometimes up close and personal. There's one story, OK, in North Africa where they go onto an enemy air base. And because the enemy have got wise to the fact that the SAS are doing these raids, they've got close they got sentries posted on every warplane, and the only way he can get onto the, onto the airbase is to kill all the sentries. He doesn't mention a word to anyone that there's a chap in the long-range desert group called David Lloyd Owen who says to him, and the two became really close friends, and he says to him, how is it, how is it tonight on the raid? And he gets him talking, and eventually Maine says, yeah, I had to knife all the sentries. Just repeat wow. that, I have to knife all the sentries. It was 17 sentries. Wow, Knife right. to death. You know, that's just one oh. raid. One raid, up close and personal with them bleeding on you as they die. So you can imagine what that will do to you. But more importantly, the thing that really most troubles all these, the, the, these individuals that you study is the loss of their friends. One of the, one of the standout characters in the book as well is, is, is the SAS doctor, a chap called Captain Malcolm Playdell. 
an amazing individual who volunteered for the SAS to save lives. Yeah, he wasn't there supposed to be toting a gun. He was there just to be under fire, risk his life and save lives. Won a military cross for doing so. And Playdell was this amazing, eloquent observer of the SAS in action. And he paints these pictures of them deep behind the lines for weeks on end, living in the desert, this camaraderie, this brotherhood. And he says, when will there ever be a time like this again? How can we ever return to normal life? How can anything that we used to worry about in normal life ever be important again? If anyone had ever said to me before the war, I would be doing what I'm doing now, living the life that I'm living now with the kind of people I am, I would have told them they were insane. Now, I cannot imagine how I will ever go back or how any of these men who I'm here with will ever return to normality. That says it all. Doesn't, yeah, and, and, and they didn't. And, and thank God then you're here to go and tell, tell, tell the tale. And I'm sure there's a lot more. You probably get approached with, with yeah, the stuff all the time, don't you? So I'm sure there's going to be more stories to tell. And, and it needs somebody like you telling them, Dave, because you, you, you've been on the right side of TV lens. That, that's the thing. It's hard for me. Listen, I'm an armchair history buff. I don't know what it's like. I can only imagine. There's a whole other, not sounds too small to put it in but another episode with your good self about your own career that we you know we've only just barely skimmed off the top because you were so eloquent and so powerful and passionate about Maine but like there's probably a whole other episode for us to, to tap back into at some stage about what you would have seen and witnessed and what obviously gives you that kind of empathy yeah no these- look look well, you know I, I, I've sat down with Everybody from World War II veterans who are still with us, thank God, through to soldiers who are in Afghanistan. And I can speak, we speak the same language. They can describe situations. And yeah, they were there with a gun. I was there with a camera. But we've stood in the same line of fire. We've seen the same awful things happen. I've felt the same highs and lows. You know, look, I'll say something which will probably strike you as being the weirdest thing you've ever heard, but it's so true. Okay. Life never feels so good you never feel more alive than when someone has tried to take your life away from you and you've survived. Does that make any sense? There's no greater high. There's no bigger buzz. It is the most addictive thing on earth. I was addicted to it for 20 years. I was addicted to being a war reporter because that buzz, everything else pales into insignificance. Someone's tried to shoot you or blow you up or kidnap you, whatever it might be, they failed, you're still there. It's the biggest high on earth. So yeah, I I can sit down with with people who have walked that same walk, but from the perspective of being in the military and I can can relate. And I think that's that's helpful. Having said that, if any of my kids ever wanted to go off and do what I did, no way. No, they're bad. (laughs) That ain't happening. (laughs) <laughs> I'll, I'll move hell or high water to stop them because yeah yeah I, yeah don't put me through what i put my father through <laughs> would you would you let them play rugby <laughs> do you know my, my 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 other son was a massive rugby player really it doesn't get it from me he's six foot two it doesn't get that from me i'm i'm a short ass but he was really yeah he was pretty good and 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 i we've had conversations and i've said look you know you've got a brilliant brain in your head yeah. Go out there and use your brain. Don't, don't. So I think he's probably put it behind him now. But yeah, sir, uh, I, I think you write about what you know, and yeah. it's hard to write about combat and under and to understand it and feel it in your heart and your soul, unless you kind of walk that walk. So and, and that's why 
I think it really is important that we, like, thank God the world has woken up to the trauma, not just soldiers, but first responders, people in hospital, people mm. in hospital working through COVID. All these people that trauma and trauma and trauma builds upon trauma. And it's a drip, drip effect. And sometimes it doesn't come through until 10 years after the event or 15 years after the event. It can come back and bite you on the ass at any time. It's really good we're recognising that. It's really good that people can speak out about it. But imagine being one of those World War II veterans and not only having to remain silent and not only thinking what's wrong with me what's wrong with me but not even being able to talk to anyone about it not being able to get a, a diagnosis I mean it, it must have been hell and you're absolutely right how did they even survive to the age they did yeah well you know what you know you it's it's so powerful listeners you, you've got to pick up this book just the way it's written and you're you're the way you've told it and coming from your own experiences as well there Damien like I said write about what you know what you're passionate about you're not like an armchair general perhaps myself and Derek are to a yeah, certain extent no, it, it, it reads better certainly haven't heard your story you know what I mean it's mm -hmm. exciting anyway but now it's like right now it's real now it's absolutely I believe everything you've written that's that, that, that's hugely important so will you do us a favour Damien come back on to the historians yeah. at some stage I feel like we You've done so well to, to do justice to, to Maine's story, but we'd love to speak to you again. Sure, sure, guys. Look, you know, it's been a pleasure. Right. And, and uh, for me, it's really special that we can talk about Paddy Maine in, in, in Ireland. Like, as I say, I, I lived in Ireland for 10 years. I lived in West Cork. I, mm. I loved I loved being there. I, you know, I had a I got lots of friends in, in, you know, across the country. And in the in the Second World War, we were all united fighting for a cause that was absolutely overarching. And we need to recognise the bravery that was that, that was involved. And yeah, I'd love to come back and talk more to you guys about whatever you feel is appropriate. So um, it's been a pleasure. Well, yeah, the next time we meet, you'll be in West Cork. We'll have a pint of Guinness ready. <laughs> find the local bar there for you. Damien Lewis, listen, in the meantime, thank you so much for your time, your generosity and your passion. It's great to meet fellow history lover that this is what this channel is all about and we're blown away sometimes Derek aren't we, yeah. by some of the guests when the, it just we really tap into that energy and that flow and that's what it felt like this evening yeah right. fantastic thanks guys thank really you appreciate it, yeah. thank you so much good night good night cheers, good night. cheers. there you go there, wow yeah. that was some interview wasn't it yeah. I'm just I'm still kind of it's the passion that I uh, that I got from it, you know. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. That, uh, it takes a little bit of time sometimes to get into that flow because again, neither of us kind of you don't know the, the interviewers know the interviewee and and vice versa. And then when you get right down into it and realise why he's writing the books he's doing, because you, you could you could look at those books and go, well, yeah, I mean that's you know yeah, that's a good money spinner. You know what I mean? Yeah, you got it's lots a, of it's another good story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. Sort yeah. Of thing. Yeah. You know the author's background there, Damien's, from, you know, he's effectively seen the thick of it himself, yeah. which we, we barely even tapped into there. He's got a whole other story there that, that I'd love to talk, to talk about. It just lends empathy and makes what he was saying really, really powerful. I'm, I'm, I'm still reading, I have to say, listeners from that. Uh, it took me time to, to process that one. That was really powerful. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys did too. Yeah, so good night, everybody. And yeah, Neil, it's time for my lava, buddy. I uh, yeah, I'm, I'm jacked. <laughs> That's it. So good night, everyone. Take care. See you next time.